no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to another great podcast from Media and the End of the World today. So it's happened at last. Is the is the is the world over? No, 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 no. We we we're not going to get there quite yet. We're we're going to reroute sure? our journey. Okay, all right. We we're going to purposely go back in time, and sort of try to stay away from present time, so we can divert ending the world. I that's a great idea because there's a lot about the present world that does cause one to want things to end. <laughs> Would you prefer that we go to 19th century Canada? I would love to go to 19th century Canada because the whole idea of being of walking through uh, the muck of an Ontario shipyard in 1843 to me is incredibly appealing. There you go. <laughs> that is where we will head first. Today we're going to be going into the fall entertainment from Netflix, a slight diversion from what we've been talking about through our past four episodes. The the voice that you heard before me or after me is Dr. Ralph Beliveau. And the voice that was doing that introduction is Adam Kroom, and we are at the Gaylord College at the University of Oklahoma. And very happy to be joined once again by Yvette Walker, our Assistant Dean of Student Affairs in Gaylord College. Yvette, welcome. Thank you. I've been waiting for today to you're, talk about these two wonderful series. And you're you're here in your unofficial capacity as an ACA fan, as an academic and a fan. I, yeah, I like that. ACA fan. Yeah. I was just going to say nerd, but okay. <laughs> nerd is good, too. Okay. A- ACA fan is the pretentious Henry Jenkins term gotcha. that's used for, uh, and it's actually, I think, a very good explanation because, you know, we do, in addition to teaching about this and being fans of this, it's like the integration of those two things things that makes it kind of exciting to hear people talk about and why we're very excited to have you here joining Wonderful. us for today. Thank She's you so much. She also has the, uh, is distinguished as the first second time guest wow. on the podcast. <laughs> I'm so honored. And let me just point out about the muck in petticoats and a dress and those little heels they had to wear. So I'm just saying. We had it, we, the women, had it had it rough in more ways than one, I, I, which we'll talk about in yes, a minute. Yes, I think there's a lot to get into that, that. If you're wondering what we're talking about, we are talking about the miniseries on Netflix titled Alias Grace. I think of all the things that have been written about me, that I am an inhuman female demon that I am an innocent victim of a blackguard forced against my will and in danger of my own life, that I was too ignorant to know how to act and that to hang me would be judicial murder, that I am well and decently dressed, that I robbed a dead woman to appear so, that I am of a sullen disposition with a quarrelsome temper, that I have the appearance of a person rather above my humble station, that I am a good girl with a pliable nature and no harm is told of me, that I am cunning and devious. That I am soft in the head and little better than an idiot. And I wonder, how can I be all these different things at once? 
I'm going to read really quickly how Netflix describes this, how they summarize the show itself. It says, in 19th century Canada, a psychiatrist weighs whether a murderess should be pardoned due to insanity, based on Margaret Atwood's award-winning novel. Well, you had me there at Margaret Atwood's award-winning novel. Yeah, absolutely. And we should make sure and note that Margaret Atwood wrote the book. This is a, a adaptation of her book, but she also wrote Handmaid's Tale as well. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting place to start is we have Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, um, incredibly acclaimed series that came out, but looks into sort of a, a cautionary tale looking towards the future as it relates to women and women's rights. Then we also have uh, this story, Alias Grace, which looks into the history as well. And we get the opportunity to be situated right in the middle of that, sort of being able to look behind us and in front of us. There's a, I, I should add that uh, in my poking around about Margaret Atwood's life at this point, uh, although she won't say specifically what they are, there are two other properties of hers that are currently being turned into productions of some kind. And uh, it's it's kind of, it's always difficult to talk because of the ambiguity. I think like calling Alias Grace a TV show seems kind of dumb because there's there's something much more complex about it. Um, and it's not a film. There was actually an attempt to try to make it into a film at some point, but that wouldn't have, you know, that wouldn't have been enough space to do the story as it needs to be done. I don't know if the other two projects are actually destined toward kind of the film world or if they're destined toward the same kind of partly film, partly TV world that, uh, that Alias Grace and, and even Handmaid's Tale are in. I, yeah. can't, I can't imagine as a movie. I mean, it wouldn't do it justice. It's just it's so complex. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's that speaks to where we are in entertainment now, because it was originally written, as Ralph mentioned, as a feature film by Sarah Polly. Then she ended up going back and rewriting it as a six part sort of TV uh, miniseries. And this was all done, I don't want to say pre-Netflix, because probably Netflix did exist. But before we really had uh, binge watching as an actual term uh verb that's in the in the, in the atmosphere and certainly yeah there's a, there's a uh if i could can i yeah please just in in the independent uh the uh the british newspaper there's actually a very good article about kind of the history of how alias grace got to where it is that ties into sarah Polly. Uh, Sarah Polly uh, had gotten really well known for doing some work uh, on uh, Road to Avonlea. Um, she was uh, a child star, actually. And at the age of 17, she took it upon herself to write a letter to Margaret Atwood saying, I would like the rights to Alias Grace. And Margaret Atwood basically said, you're 17. No. <laughs> so um, so then, you know, a bunch of time passes and other people had been involved with trying to turn Alias Grace into a, coming up with a media version of it. But, you know, Sarah Polly basically uh, bided her bided bid. 
took it, her time, stayed interested in the idea of what this could eventually be. And then, um, you know, basically 20 years later is, is when, and she had apparently been working on the script. She'd worked on it as a film script and just realized that there, there needed to be more. So that's kind of how it ended up taking the shape that it did. And I think it's really fortunate for us as an audience that she was the one who ended up doing it uh, as executive producer and really solo writer for the whole thing. Um, and that's kind of an interesting thing to think about, too, because one of the things that's happening, this is just a little bit of nerdy media stuff, um, television in in the U.S. context is traditionally a writer's room kind of thing where you have a group of people working on things. It's not very often that it's an individual thing, but that's been changing quite a bit over um, the past few years and as TV productions have been more uh, – Single person productions like uh, the ones that come to mind immediately to me are Mr. Robot and um, Fargo, which were both series where it was a, a single person who was basically responsible for show running and scripting and all of that. Um, so I think uh, and I think that gives an opportunity for other people to get involved in it. And of course, what's really fundamentally important about Alias Grace as a property is that it's women involved in being the producers, the executive producers and the director, Mary Heron. Um, is, is, you know, so, so it's a, so it's giving people opportunities that, you know, in a typical, very male run business wouldn't exist. Yvette at 17, were you pitching major authors to adapt their work into screenplays? No, no, but I was working on my school newspaper and yearbook. There you go. <laughs> and I was, I was working at a high school radio station, um, trying to annoy people by playing ar arbitrarily shortly edited versions of Stairway to Heaven to annoy them. Uh, you brought up uh, Sarah Pauly being 17, writing this, and I, I listened to an interview her uh, with her which I thought was really interesting in which she talks about how she sees this as narrative, right? It's about narrative. It's about why we need it. Uh, it's about how we try to make sense of the nature of the lives by creating stories, how many versions of the same story uh, can exist. And what we see through alias Grace, through Grace Marx, is that there's almost, there's not one Grace, um, there's two, there's three, there's four, there's a spectrum of different graces that exist. Um, Yvette, how did you, while watching this, you know, keep, keep separate the different graces that are appearing throughout the series? Well, speaking of narrative, I really wanted to understand this life that she was living, which was awful. Um, so, and I know what you're talking about, but even to take it a little bit different from from the first grace where she's very uh, naive, but not naive because she knows she has to stay away from her father because, she, that, you know, there's there's one incident from happening that would be very, very, very terrible, which they which they hint at, but never happened, I don't believe. And, you know, the fact that he's a drunk and he might try to rape her, I don't think that happened. It seemed, seems like it was maybe one step away from happening. So she wasn't that naive. But then when she went, went out in the world, she was very naive, Grace. And then she gets involved with, you know, with um, the other characters. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, I'm sure. But um, just whether or not her friend truly embodies her and then or and then of course you know whether or not she's just a liar i mean there's just so many 
pieces that could be happening. But what I was trying to do was to really see if I could understand and kind of walk a mile in her shoes, which, oh, my God, I would never want to. But I felt like if I could truly understand that, and I think the writing went so far and helped me try to get there, then maybe I would understand the predicament and and really what happened because of course that that's the the question of all what really happened you know in this in this miniseries but i think that was really important um just that background and the horror that she went through which to the to the miniseries credit hinted at it did not go overboard it did not show what it could have shown especially her time in jail and in the institution um it seemed like in the asylum was where a lot of the really yeah you know and they and and they handled it in a way i think and it's something interesting to think about when again when women are responsible for writing and directing pieces like that um cruelty to women can end up being portrayed very differently it's not really presented as and and this this is going to sound a little screwed up but in many cases it can be presented as an object of pleasure for a male audience Mm -hmm. and um and in 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 other cases it's presented as as an object of horror that's you know not not a pleasurable thing Um, and i think they're very careful about doing that in the show right but you know but i think the idea of sex sexual power over over a woman um we just ran through the whole thing from the very beginning the hint of potential abuse by her father to just becoming you know a a a, a servant and having to negotiate the family dynamic where you have a son who could maybe have his way with you and then then ignore you um, to coming into a, another household where p- the, your potential boss could be someone who abused you to abuse in the asylum. I mean, the, you know, sexual abuse and power ran through the entire miniseries and uh, helped shape her to the woman that she was, whatever woman that was. Yeah. <laughs> That was, you know, it's also a culture where, um, you know, uh, where, you know, sort of this Victorian era culture. So she was she's Irish, although she's descended. Her uh, father was English. And that was part of why they had to leave Ireland was because of some compromised political problems. But, you know, basically women were under the control of the father and then the husband and then the doctor and then the the judicial system, which is kind of so one of the things that's amazing about the whole, the the whole presentation is that grace is always contained and you get the sense right from the beginning that there's much more going on than what people even come close to understanding about what's going on uh, in her head and in the way she understands the way the doctor is talking to her uh, her relationship to her father and everything else. But by the time she meets the doctor, she has gone through so much. I mean, that's, I think that's the one, maybe not the first relationship, but the first relationship that I saw where she was, she had the upper hand. She, she had control of that narrative. Yeah. She's gone through so much and she's also had time to start to construct that narrative or try Mm -hmm. to try to understand really what's happened to her and and to put it into her own terms. 
I think it is important to step back really quickly and talk about where Margaret Atwood comes at this, because while it is a uh, a novel, a piece of fiction, it is based off of a true story. Right. And these events have happened. And um, that what really sets it up is this is a an actual court case that took place where an Irish immigrant had came over to Canada. Um, as mentioned, I'd said spent time as a housemaid for multiple families, um, none of whom can be witnesses because they've basically all vanished by the time that this 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 goat comes through. So we don't really have anyone that we can really start to corroborate any type of evidence. <clears throat> but this becomes a major trial. And if we look about where this is situated within time, so we have the 1837 rebellion that happens in Canada, which is referenced multiple times specifically by the character Mary Mary Whitney, who who uh, sort of um, brings this to to grace. And what, what we actually see is the trial take place in 1843. So we're coming out of this. And what we know about this historically is this was a case very much about class. If you were um, part of the lower class, you likely thought that Grace was innocent. And if you were part of the gentry, if you were part of the, of, of the rich, well, you thought that she did do it, that she had uh, murdered um, basically her masters. And I think that's really interesting as we think about that is, and it's all, it's all also to say we never really know what happens because as the story ends, uh, Grace is convicted. She's has to serve a 30 year sentence. She gets pardoned at, I think, 28, 29 years of that sentence. And then she vanishes. And what we know is she went to New York and, and to never be heard from again. And so Margaret Atwood's coming at this story where we don't in, in, in we don't have a way of even looking at the real story and saying this is exactly what happened because we never got that opportunity to do that. And she almost leverages that as a technique in which she can take into the, the story that she, the novel that she writes itself, where the, the, the best part about this is we can't come to an uh, to a conclusion, although we can potentially debate it. Yeah, I think there's a it, – it has some interesting parallels to the virgin suicides in – I don't know if you're familiar with that, but in the transition from the novel to the film that Sofia Coppola made of it, she actually reverses the perspective completely where in the novel – uh, Eugenides writes it so that it's the point of view of the sisters from all the men that live around her. And then when Sofia Coppola makes a film of it, she turns it inside out. So it's the perspective of the 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 girls on what's going on around them. And I think in a lot of ways that same thing is going on in Alias Grace. And you mentioned the lower class probably would want to believe Grace's story and the upper class probably would not. But then we had this curious group of people of a religious sect of some kind mm. who wanted to believe her. What do you think that they existed? Uh, what do you think about them? I I love the spiritual undertones that take this entire series and they're on a spectrum too, right? Because we've um, we have Jeremiah who kind of dabbles in palm reading uh, and eventually uh, what is it that he does uh, later on? Hypnosis. Yeah. He, he's a, he's a hypnotist as mm-hmm. well. Right. Uh, we've May, got maybe gr- <laughs> we'll, we'll, potentially, potentially uh, as I much was, as I any hypnotist can be a hypnotist. I, I right? But always picture him. I don't know if you do you remember Godspell. He looks Jeremiah looks exactly like the Judas in Godspell. <laughs> just, just creepy. Anyway, we've got Grace, who is incredibly religious, um, knows her Bible inside and out. 
um, quotes it a lot, is able to look at paintings and know when they aren't in the Bible itself. Uh, rely- As a good Irish girl would. Yeah, and, and, and I think we can contend in a lot of ways she's a very good girl. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of times where men approach her and she's very firm with them. Um, you know, she, uh, there are things, you know, she's, she is open about that. Uh, she wasn't necessarily for Mary Whitney's abortion that she has in it as well. Mm-hmm. That she believes that's against, uh, her religion. So there's, there's a lot there as well. And then we've got this spiritual group in the middle, which for better or for worse are sort of leveraging their beliefs to try to pardon her. Right. Right. One of the things I like the most about that group is that they're the face of them is the film director, David Cronenberg. Who's playing the guy with the mutton chops? Uh, mm. the, that role. I did not realize that's, yeah, that. That's that's what? him. Yep, that's David oh, Cronenberg. That's wonderful. I have and to go back and look at that. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, and he and, and he's <laughs> he, Cronenberg. Yeah, he's. It's just. It's interesting to see him as an actor. He was. Uh, he was in. Um, what was the? Oh gosh, I'm not going to remember it now. The Clive Barker. Um, It'll come to me later. Wait, this noun will pop out, I promise, but it's not just not going to come right now. But he basically plays a serial killer in another film, but he's mostly known as a, a director of a lot of body horror related stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's Canadian. <laughs> you know, I wondered, the, the, the people in this group, I'm going to call it a sect because I just don't yeah. know what it, the people in this group um, what certainly were above her station. You know, I don't know how much you know money or land they owned but they definitely were above her station but it seemed like they wanted to believe her so much especially the the main religious leader uh why was that did they want to believe her because they simply could not fathom believing that a woman could do this or or that they had lived with her and she'd worked for them, and they again they could not they didn't want to wrap their hand their heads around I think that. I, I I I was going to agree with that second point because Grace talks about this as she she becomes uh, something to be looked upon right that she that again if we it, and this isn't a part that's really told in the miniseries is she is the O.J. Simpson trial of her time mm. right um, they actually say that the the courtroom floor broke because so many people were in there. Uh, during this trial. So I think she becomes afterwards an object for the upper class to sort of gaze upon. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something that she ends up sort of struggling with, particularly when she gets pardoned. Is she, you know, ends up saying like, I don't know what it's going to be like uh, to not have this, this title of, of murderess um, that sort of elevates me sort of in, 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 in the situation as well. I, and I, I think that's what has to do with that. I think she, she gets placed in the governor's house, uh, you know, the wife to kind of takes fondly on her and be very curious about her, just having her around. Um, and for a lot of reasons, Grace showing nothing within the household that would allow you to conclude that she could be the, the, the type of person that would commit uh, such acts. Right. Because she was she was a wonderful servant. She did good work. No one ever had anything bad to say about her work. She wasn't lazy. I think that goes back to her upbringing because she basically had to raise the family. One little aside, though, and, and I don't know, did I miss this? But I simply I kept waiting for her to at least talk about going back to the family. 
And I never heard that. She basically left those children in the care of that terrible man. Mm. And that younger sister was going to be next. I mean, she was she was going to be abused. Well, Mary talks her out of sending her money back to her dad. I remember that. But that but after that, I don't remember anything. And I just kept wondering why they seem like a very close knit family, especially the younger sister. How could she not care about what was going on to them? That that was the one thing that I really could not wrap my head around mm-hmm. I, that that you know that not that I <laughs> that's the one thing yeah right <laughs> exactly that's the one thing but I in 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 as much as I was trying to understand her and the more I felt like I could understand her and her upbringing and her um what what drove her through the narrative that was the one thing that rang a little false to me I just kept thinking at least for her to to say it or think about it oh I wish mm-hmm. I could know what was going on at home Although she was pretty busy in her own situation. I understand that. Well, I I was just going to add the thing that one of the things I was very grateful for in the whole project was that it was not at all Downton Abbey. Like there was no, no, there there was no. And actually, that's one of the things that Mary Heron said when when she was talking to Sarah Polly about directing it was that Mary Heron said she knew I wasn't going to deliver Downton Abbey, you know, (laughs) that she was going to do something much, much more serious. And that was something that had really bothered me about Downton Abbey is it really wasn't very serious about the kind of oppressive class environment, much less all the gender constraints that people were living inside of. Um, and I, I, one of the things that I really liked about the whole dimensions inside of Alias Grace is how it explores those in such thorough detail. Well, let's, I, I, I want to talk really quick and, and I have to give for our audience say that major spoilers, at least for the TV show, again, this is a real life event we can say for a fact we don't know really what happens but for the for the for the mini series itself we have in the last episode we have grace um go under the hypnotism of jeremiah or i think has become jerome dr jerome i think it's that right and um <clears throat> has this part where she basically speaks as mary whitney and this is where it gets really interesting for the for the show itself because I've I've thought in my head uh, that we have really three th- three theories three main theories as to what could have happened. Um, theory one is that Grace has been lying the whole time. Jeremiah is in on it. This is all a ruse. Um, you know everything that she, that she's talking about to Doctor Jordan. You know, it's you can't really trust it itself, and it's a you know a, a story about can you trust a narrator? Theory two is that Mary Whitney exists inside of Grace in some type of capacity, and this goes again talking about the spiritual side of it, metaphysical um, yeah, reality. It, it was yeah, yeah, Grace. Um, you know, thinking that because she didn't open the window, Mary Whitney was never let, her soul was never let out mm-hmm. and potentially has entered grace itself. And then a third theory is that potentially that she has some type of multiple uh, m- mental uh, disorder, multiple personality disorder itself. At least those are the three that I've, I've floated. Is there any, is there any other potential theories that could exist in, in there or any that you are um, leaning towards? Well, the, you know, the, whether or not she had some kind of mental break, um, 
there's there's a lot to be said for that because again, what she went through, uh, just through her upbringing and seeing her friend die like that. Yeah, you you could say that she had you know potentially had some kind of um, mental break, some kind of um, dissociative disorder. I yeah, I mean, if someone wanted to to float that, I certainly could see how that could be possible. Um, but the but one thing that bothers me is when Jeremiah comes to take her away, and she says no. This is before anything happened. And he told her what he was going to do and how she could be his assistant and she could, you know, pretend to go under hypnosis and the whole thing. So there was some there was some, you know, um, um, foundation that was laid for that. I mean, at least she knew about it. So when he went to put her under hypnosis, whether or not he, you know, did a little wink and and a nod, I felt like that was still there. So. When she first went under, I wondered, is she is she faking? Because they talked about doing just that. But then when it got a little um, nutty, <laughs> then it's like, well, maybe it's more than that. So um, for myself, it's I don't I don't know. For, for, for when I first talked to you about this, I thought she she did it. She lied. She got <laughs> caught up in it and she just straight out did it. Um. I don't know if I believe in, you know, the ghost capturing her soul as much as maybe the dissociative disorder. So for me, it's either she did it and she's lying. But again, she went through a lot. I'm not saying, you know, murder is ever anything to forgive, but I can see perhaps how that could have happened or she had a mental break. Ralph, where where do you stand? Well, all right. So this is where you're going to want to throw stuff at me. I'm going to be that person. <laughs> um, the central, so part no, of no, what no, I, don't, don't go there yet. I, I want you to take a side and then we can talk about take it. A, I have to take a side. <laughs> take a side first. We can talk about, I, all right, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you I know this. where you're going and I agree. Right. So, I, I mean, cause I'm, I am on the side of the idea. I, the, the, were you going to go to quilts? Because I think to me, we can certainly go to quilts. Cause yeah, I think, yeah. I think that, you know, to the extent that I'd ever want to resolve it, which I don't. And I think now, Again, I'm I'm like I love ambiguity, but I think the idea of the quilt that's a central metaphor in the whole thing, they talk about it at the very beginning of the discussions with the doctor, they talk about it at the very end when she's when her life is getting resolved and she makes the quilts that she's that she has always wanted to, that you know, and and what happens is that the stories that the the various versions of the stories that make up what we experience as an audience, which is this complex combination of bits and pieces of realities that make up who this person is and the way that she can possibly become her own person through all of the limitations that are put on by assembling the pieces of of Mary, of herself, of her own historical experience, that all of that makes her the person that she is and it's really in the in the 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 in in that in the idea of the quilt that I think that the personality comes together now if I want to get really obnoxious and pretentious about it there's an idea that comes out of Lacan which is called a quilting point and I don't remember what the French term for this is but 
as you all remember from your introduction to Lacan, which you remember, of course, um, there's a there are points where you know we are separated from what's really going on around us by our language. But there are these points that happen where, and he calls them quilting points. Which, if you picture a quilt as as two pieces of cloth, and there is you know there there's stitching that happens all around in it, and at the stitching, the two layers of the cloth come together, and there's usually a little hole there. And Lacan's idea was that those little holes are where our potential access to something that's outside of language sort of like becomes real, becomes that that thing that gets us outside of, of how we're limited by our language into something that's actually in the real, which we almost never have access to. And we're so we're still on our side of the quilt. We never get back on the pre-linguistic side of the quilt, but we're able to actually kind of perceive that that's there. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's where she's at is she's perceiving who she really could be uh, on the other side of that, but in a culture where that's not allowed. So grace is the quilt. Uh, well, yeah, grace is the, the quilt for grace is a way for her to potentially try to, to, to experience what she could be if she wasn't stuck in a culture that was never going to let her be herself basically. Mm. So I think I think Grace gives somewhat of an answer to this in which the, early on within the series, she is talking about uh, Mary Whitney's death. And she asks the question of who's to blame. Is it Mary who is to blame? Is it the doctor who's to blame? Is it George Parkinson, the son that's to blame? You know, um, in reality, there's you know, you can you can argue for how those get, get shared themselves. Um, and so I, I think. I, I, th- I think we can we can look at that. And wh- the reason I ask is um, I believe it was Mary Heron who was talking about this in an interview. The the director of it is she was talking about what she loved about this is the actors themselves took different sides. And that came out because there are different answers at different points as mm-hmm. to what actually happened. Um, and I was listening to Kerr Logan, who plays McDermott, talking about the, at some point he's talking to Sarah Gadden about um, this. And he goes, um you know that it's you know basically split half and half you know whose fault it is between McDermott and and Grace and she's like oh my you know like <laughs> i can't believe that you think that but that but that's that's what's so interesting about it is um but because because there's no right answer potentially all that will be although i i will i will say that I, I think that the mini series leads you to believe the ghost story a little bit more. And there's a lot that happens, particularly what I caught on the rewatch um, where Grace and she even talks about, you know, th- this um, with uh, uh, with Dr. Jordan as well, is that, you know, after after Mary passes and she's sleeping in Mary's bed and she has this moment where she wakes up and she's saying, where's Grace? Where's Grace? I have to find her. And that she's been told that she doesn't remember any of that as well. Um, certainly her sleepwalking, a lot of her dreams. Oh, uh, the headless angels. Yeah, that's pretty. Oh. <laughs> Pretty, pretty gruesome. Huh? That, that was so awesome. That was <laughs> probably, probably the most disturbing part of it, other than um, uh, uh, seeing uh, the leg of Nancy Montgomery right, yes, come out of nowhere. That's yeah. that probably a little bit too far. <laughs> yeah, down on the farm. Yeah. yeah. 
So, but but I do like. I mean, certainly quilting's um, a big piece of it. I did hear Mary Heron talk about how the way that she shot those, so that the, all of those scenes uh, between Doctor Jordan and Grace were shot within six days, and they went through about sixty pages of dialogue. And what Mary Heron was talking about was from a a, a directing standpoint you know there there's no like camera swinging around the whole set it's very traditionally sh- classically shot yes where it is uh close-ups of both of them you see a lot of facial expressions and then you have a macro lens which is on uh on on grace sewing which was actually shot by uh, uh her husband was the was the, was the macro camera uh, director there, which well, that was really interesting because I mean, obviously, with the 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 thread that they're trying to pull through this whole series uh, is that this story, this quilt, is being weaved together throughout the, throughout the entire thing, and then obviously at the end we see that Grace has made her own her own quilt, the mm-hmm. Tree of Paradise, uh, which includes um, pieces of her own gown. Uh, the the petticoat that Mary Whitney had given her and part of Nancy's dress, mm-hmm. which she had worn when she first saw her and when she uh, when she left. got arrested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think she's wearing it in the courtroom. She although is, I'm she not, is. I'm not she certain. Is. She, no, no, she, is. she is. She definitely is. And it's interesting because I read that um, the uh, the person responsible for the costuming when they when they saw that the dress was going to be pink, they were kind of horrified because you pink was an unusual color, but it was in the book. So, of course, she had to use it. And they went through several pinks because pink can be very washed out on camera. Mm-hmm. So they went through all these pinks, and they and they and and she ultimately got to something that was described as a uh, pinkish peony um, for, for that color. But it's interesting because, yes, she was arrested, and she wore the dress in the courtroom. And... But she was not wearing Nancy's foundational garb, so she so it wasn't it was ill fitting on her. Interesting. The the dress did not fit her. Interesting. She didn't have the kind of underwear that you would wear with that kind of a dress. So she looked like someone that was you know parading as someone else, which in fact she was. But and I understand that you know when you say that the um, the series sets up the ghost story as the plausible one, but. The whole idea that the patchwork quilt is indeed her life story and this particular narrative, I don't know. For me, it also makes either of the other ones just as plausible. The fact that she's gone through so much, she had the mental break, and those are the pieces of the quilt, or the fact that she ultimately could never be the person that she wanted to be, so she took her fate into her own hands, killed these people along with them, uh, McDermott, and then in the end, of course, she got caught many, many years later. Um, she did have somewhat of the life that she wanted, and so I could see really either working. The reason that I don't, and, and this isn't this isn't a good reason, but the reason that I don't like to subscribe to the um, it's it's her background and her history, and it's a breakdown, is because that's the one that Doctor Jordan projects onto her, mm-hmm. and a lot of this is about. How what what he projects onto her, which we see sometimes what he's thinking, you know, which yes. is her as this potential lover, um, and again something that he's trying to project onto her as well. So I, I have this conflicting relationship that I have with Doctor Jordan. Um, well, look at Jordan. Look at where he ended up. Oh yeah. I yeah. mean, 
<laughs> Jordan. Yeah, he is. A, I mean, he's a ghost. He's not a person anymore by yeah. the end. He's yeah. catatonic and uh, having been injured in the Civil War. So he's just not there anymore. But his and I won't even say relationship with her because there was none. But, you know, he, he fantasized about being with her um, even to the point where the landlady that he's living with who threw mm-hmm. herself at him, he succumbs one night and just in his own mind pretends that it is indeed grace. Um, so his, his reaction to her, was it because he could not break her or because he had such, this, such an infatuation toward her or both? Because it felt like when, when he, when, when they're done and she is, you know, she's convicted and he leaves as, you know, the last of their conversations. He seems like a broken man even then. So why was it because he felt like he really couldn't get to where he felt because he because he always said that he did not know. I think it's because she didn't become what he wanted her to. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't he didn't win in any way with grace. Mm-hmm. He didn't come to an answer. He didn't get her for himself. Right. Um, he wasn't going to be able to write the report. Yeah, 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 yeah. He didn't, yeah, he never ended up um, successful in anything that he was sort of pursuing. One, I, I just have to, 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 to just go back for just a little bit about the notion of ambiguity and, and the idea of when Grace becomes Mary and is speaking for herself that she does that. There's all these, I think one of the really beautiful things in the construction of this are all these like doubled things that happen in it, like when Grace is being brought to the warden's house to do domestic chores, right? So it's like she's being taken out of prison and brought to a home, but for all of the wrong reasons, right? To do domestic work, to do what a servant is supposed to do, but she's not really a a servant anymore. And then when she is hypnotized or whatever it is that's happening to her, um, she's veiled and it's a Mm -hmm. black veil. So it has this, it, it kind of suggests a wedding veil, suggesting a burial shroud, suggesting that the only way, the closest she can get to ever really saying what she's thinking is when she's disguised. And mm-hmm. I, I just thought that was like really brilliantly constructed when they did that. So one thing that I have just recently found out is that there's a bit of a discussion online about Alias Grace and it causing um a form of ASMR, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Have you heard about this? No, you, never. If you YouTube IKEA and ASMR, they actually have a 30-minute promotional thing where they are smoothing the sheets. And basically ASMR triggers a response, usually described as the, as the hairs rising on your neck, through sound, through um through spreading your hands on sheets or clicking or making certain kind of noises. So apparently fans say that, that, that there are several scenes in Alias Grace that trigger this response, usually through the housework of the servants, them making the beds, them scrubbing the floors, this kind of auditory sound that will trigger this. Now, I, I've never known myself to actually have this kind of trigger, so I don't, you know, I've never experienced this. Um, I wonder if our listeners has. If you have, it is a form of ASMR, apparently. <laughs> Let us know at mediaintheinderworld at gmail.com. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting phenomenon, sort of almost like sensory switching, mm-hmm. like the, uh, that, that kind of a response. But I'll have to learn more about that because I wasn't aware of that before. 
Okay, we're going to do a we're going to do this as a part one and a part two simply because we have zero sponsors <laughs> and we work off of a free plan that only allows us um, to upload a, a certain amount of content and we're coming up on that now. So we're going to going to take a break and then we will do part two as Stranger Things too. Nerd squeal. <laughs> 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 